It probably wouldn't be too hard to guess what time you'll get out of bed tomorrow, what you'll have for breakfast, what route you'll take to work or the shops. But what if someone was able to accurately predict what will happen in the world in five years' time? What about 20 years? What about a few centuries down the track? Someone who can accurately predict the future that far in advance is surely worth taking seriously. Ready to do some thinking? Switch on your brain. Now. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Yes, it's absolutely fantastic to have you with us this week on Signs of the Times Radio and with me via Skype from beautiful Maryborough in Queensland is one of our authors, Mr. Nathan Tasker. How are you, Nathan? Hey, doing well, Kent, and so good to be able to join you today. Excellent, excellent. And look, it's it's good to know that even if... Your good mate Anastasia Palaszczuk there in, in Queensland has has been a, a little strict on crossing that border into Queensland. We we are still able to chat via phone, via Skype. Yeah, and obviously, you know, via podcast and radio, this message is going all over Australia, borders notwithstanding. Wow, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, it's been a crazy time, hasn't it, all, all the stuff going on? Yeah, but it, look, it, it is good to hear that uh, Queensland is, you know, gradually sort of relaxing those restrictions, and it's great to hear that, you know, the COVID numbers are down all over the place. Yes, it's yeah. it's it's looking like it's it's going to be a well. Let's 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 hope and pray for a, a much better last few months of the year than uh, yes. than, than the earlier months. Yes, yep. Joining you, man. Yeah. Now, Nathan, you're a, a pilot by trade. You've you've been uh, you've worked for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. You're in Maryborough there, offering yourself for aviation work, doing a, a few uh, medivac flights here and there. But what what is it about flying that you're so passionate about? And what sort of person does it take to be a, a good pilot? Oh well, yeah. I've uh, got a lifelong, um, I guess. Uh, some people call it an affliction. I call it a joy to go flying. And, yeah, I, I get a real kick out of helping people. You know, it's one thing to to just do a job and come home and say, I did it, but to come back and think, hey, you know, hopefully someone's doing better as a result of our work today. I found that very fulfilling with the flying doctors, and now I'm doing the same sort of thing again. It's uh, international air ambulance work. So even with this COVID thing, we haven't had as much work, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, bringing patients in from overseas to Australia for advanced medical care. And as far as what does it take to be a, a good pilot, there are all kinds of stuff out there that officially provides what what people are looking for. But, yeah, good to be calm under pressure, good to have a way to be clinical and less on the emotional side of things and, uh, yeah, just able to, to really be procedural and follow the procedures that we know are the right ones, uh, even when things turn pear-shaped, and um, <laughs> that takes a bit of a gift. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I guess a, a good background in science and maths wouldn't wouldn't hurt. I, I get the feeling that a lot of pilots are more sort of technical type people. Is that right? Yes, yeah, definitely. Uh, if, if any listeners out there thinking about a bit of a, a flying kind of a career, the advice I was given was do all you can to learn physics, maths, and uh, English. I was six years old when I got that advice, and uh, it's true. <laughs> maths and physics, the English part didn't make sense. I'm not as good at English as I am at maths and physics, but, yeah, good communication skills, uh, good 
good literacy skills, not just conversationally, but some of the some of the logic and some of the the history of literature actually surprisingly helps people solve stuff under pressure. Believe it or not, so okay. interesting stuff there. Yeah, and and look, I imagine there must be times. Uh, I think the technical term is whiteout. You know, when you've got cloud all around you, it's difficult to know you know which way is up and down, whether you're Arthur or Martha. And and in that si- in, in that situation, you've got to trust your instruments because the like what your body is possibly telling you about gravity and what's up and down may not actually be accurate. That's right. And the, the tricky part is, as good as instruments are, instruments are not infallible either. So as we are scanning the instruments and we tell our students, or where I was tra- trained when I was a student as well, yes, obey the instruments, but you've also got to cross-check the instruments because if, if two are saying one thing and the third one's saying another, we've got to figure out who to, who to trust and who to believe. And that could be a good segue for us today. We can't just take things at face value and call it good. We've got to be discerning, and that's a hallmark of a good pilot. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. And, and this is something that I've I've sort of you know gathered from you over the last few years that I've known you that you you are a very a very logical, a very sort of scientific person, and but you're also uh, a man of of deep Christian faith. And it's really interesting to hear you apply that sort of more rational approach to faith and to argue things through carefully and and in a friendly way. I mean, you're, you're a friendly guy, you have good relationships with all kinds of people, but it, it's it's good to hear. Like, but, but I guess some people might struggle to understand that. How can you be rational and religious at the same time? You know, how are these things not incompatible? Yeah, I've... I've um had some very interesting discussions with my wonderful colleagues over the years who are themselves very educated and and pride themselves on rational thinking. You know, my, my colleagues are, are paramedics, nurses, doctors, fellow pilots and engineers. They too are very good at what they do and for good reason. And I, I guess to my way of thinking, and I'm, I'm very open to guidance on this, I'm on a journey myself, but mm. as I dig deeply and look at the laws of logic, you know, logic itself requires some sort of organization, you know, logic only works because we have some basic ground rules that we agree on. But, you know, if the whole universe is chaotic and nothing at all is predictable, why would we even assume that logic would help us out? <laughs> mm. It's interesting you say that, Nathan, because I, I saw a, I didn't read it thoroughly, but I saw a, a little news item uh, just today where a philosopher was saying, you know, I think there's probably about a one out of three chance that we're living not in a real world, but actually in a simulation. <laughs> it's like, whoa. Like a matrix or something. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. It it's yeah. could be a simulation, <laughs> quite likely. And, and, and I've done some philosophical studies, and that's that certainly could be argued, but at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves not only what's logical, but what can we actually apply to our real life. You know, it could be that I'm in the ether imagining this conversation right now, mm. and it could be that that I could logically explain that away, but then I've also got the, the joys and pleasures of relationships and having breakfast this morning, you know, it all becomes a little bit meaningless if I'm just going to focus on my hypothesis that we're in some sort of an ether somewhere. So, yeah, yeah. yes, it's got to be logical, but it's also got to work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, ab- absolutely. So, Nathan, I'm not sure you, you realise, I mean, you, you do obviously realise that you've written an article for us in Science of the Times magazine uh, this month. It's entitled, Who Can Predict the Future? But I'm not sure you realise that you made the front cover. D- did you realise that? It's Your article is on the front cover 
who can yeah, predict this is all this is all new to me i'm very honored and i i hope it helps people yeah well look we'll, we'll be uh, sending a copy of the magazine to you very soonish so you can you know ha- have a look at the actual actual hard copy better but the subtitle of of the article is is quite interesting plane parking pilots and paul the octopus <laughs> which is like <laughs> well that, that that alliterates beautifully and we've we've heard about you being a pilot but what what is it about plane parking pilots that sort of fits into all this notion of who can predict the future i mean you're just telling us how how rational they they tend to be yeah, yeah. So obviously, uh, I think all of us would like to know what the future holds right now. If I could pick the stock prices uh, for next week, or if I could figure out the whole coronavirus thing, mm. I could really make a killing uh, myself financially, not to mention uh, my family. So when it comes to pilots and parking airplanes, and I want to say thank you to my uh, dear friend and uh, colleague, Alan Ben, by the way, if you're listening out there, thanks heaps for the, the pictures and the story. But essentially, when we're flying an aeroplane, there's all kinds of equipment to help us navigate during cruise, climb, descent. Fairly detailed and, and very accurate and important and obviously so. Hmm. When it comes to parking on the tarmac, however, there's, there's a lot less accuracy there. And we have some lines painted and the basic goal is to get the nose wheel, you know, within plus or minus, you know, half a foot or something like that of this marking for the nose wheel. And, of course, the pilot can't see the nose wheel. So as the plane is being marshaled in, there's people, you know, waving the, the stereotypical, you know, like those like um, ping pong paddles. paddles. <laughs> yep. Or some of the more sophisticated airports now have, have funny little like traffic lights and, and indicators saying, you know, come forward a bit more, you know, turn left a bit, right a bit. And of course, if you're, if you're within half a foot, you're doing just fine. And the mm. light says green and you shut down, and you're done. But my friend, um, Alan, is, I mean, he's obviously a very good pilot. He's a veteran and he's really good at what he does. But he's posted a couple of times on Facebook um, a photograph of his nose wheel. And the nose wheel's got two, two, wheel assem- two wheels straddling exactly either side of a center line with the axle exactly on top of the perpendicular bisector. He's parked it with within an accuracy of like, you know, half a centimetre or better. Wow. So we, 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 we might be able to call this perfectly positioned uh, perpendicular plane parking pilots. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. And, 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 of course, this is so amazing that it's on Facebook. He's done it twice in the last few years. And to be honest, he, he is trying to do it. He's a good pilot. Hmm. He, he takes pride in himself. I'm probably... I have high standards too, but you know, if I'm if I'm within half the foot, I'm pretty happy, and and that's that the job's done. But this guy, he must surely be trying every single time, and he's pulled it off a couple of times with such accuracy as to be truly amazing. So much so that when he posted it on Facebook, you know, all of his aviation friends are piping up with all these all these quips. You know, you know, it must have been the engineers, or maybe somebody painted the lines after you parked it. You know, anything yeah. at all other than you did it on purpose because it's just a little bit too unbelievable. You know, mm-hmm. chance happens once, but to claim that you can do it every time, you know, it just becomes a little bit. No disrespect to my mate Alan, he'll tell you he's he's that good, and I and I, I'd, I'd mostly agree with him. But to be honest, to do it a hundred percent of the time within half a centimeter accuracy. Now, that to me is a signature of of some pretty special powers, <laughs> <laughs> and that, and and I guess that's uh, that's where you sort of launch in your article into this whole thing of you know what 
pretty special powers. You know, there are all kinds of claims made by all kinds of people uh, over the years, you know, all around the world of these um, amazing sort of predictive powers. I mean, you, you bring up Paul the Octopus, for example. I, I remember mm. that, you know, several years ago, there was a, a, a big uh, soccer World Cup going on, and it turned out that uh, Paul the Octopus in Germany there had a pretty uncanny ability to predict the winners. Yeah, it certainly made the headlines, didn't it? I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners will remember that if you're into soccer at all, or if you haven't, if you just go to Wikipedia and look at Paul the Octopus, there's all kinds of uh, stats and photos there. And it, yeah, a big stir. <laughs> <laughs> so pr- predictive science, I mean, is is there such a thing? Is it is it possible to, to predict the future? <laughs> well, uh, I think this this will probably get our listeners in, into a bit of a debate here. And I, I say, to be honest, there's probably two perspectives here. I think one group of people would say it's it's too impossible to predict the future with absolute certainty. We can make some good guesses, you know, like, like a meteorologist, for example, mm. will look at the uh, imagery and the data and make what we call an educated guess. And those can be pretty impressive guesses. Some places, no offence to Queensland, but uh, it is harder to predict the weather under certain atmospheric conditions. And, and the meteorologists up here have a more difficult time than someone in South Australia, for example, right. uh, just because of the, the, the atmospheric properties that we're working with. But yeah. to have 100%, we know for a fact this will happen tomorrow at 2.37pm, it gets into pretty rarefied air. And I think, yeah, the debate's going to rage, and so we're going to have to come up with some sort of a litmus test. And, and I guess my question would be for our audience, what would it take for you to believe or to trust or to think, hmm. uh, what would it take to, for a reasonable person to suggest that the future could be predicted? And I'd like to propose, uh, I guess in the article, I'm proposing a, a, a test, if you like, hmm. that we can decide whether or not the future can be predicted. It, which is? So I'm, so I'm borrowing some work from uh, a gentleman by the name of William Dembski. Some people loathe him and some people love him, and I'm not going to worry about that detail, but he comes up with a term called specified complexity, where essentially he says, if we draw a target ahead of time and then hit it subsequently, that is one marker for being able to predict the future. Obviously, if I were to shoot an arrow at random and then get a paintbrush and draw a bullseye where it lands, Mm. that's laughable. But if I were to close my eyes, spin around 180 degrees and then hit a target that had been previously drawn, and I was intending to hit that target. I guess like a like a golf shot. If I'm if I'm a, a non-professional golfer, yeah. but I go out and hit a hole in one, the flag was there all along, the hole was there, I hit it on my first shot, and I intended to. If I told you ahead of time, I'm going to get that hole in one in two minutes' time, and then I do it, you'd be like, wow. Hmm. Although my skeptical friends, uh, and I'm one of those, by the way, I'm a skeptical friend too. If you get a if you get a hole in sh- a hole in one shot once, you'd say, "Well, what a what a great coincidence! What are the chances?" Yeah. But if I come back to you and say, "Well, let's do another one. I'll do another one right now. I'm going to get this hole in one as well." And my question to the audience is going to be, "How many consecutive hole in ones will it take before you suspect something is up?" Uh, if I went to the if I went to the yep. pokies in Las Vegas, for example, and not, not that I'm advocating this, I'm not a gambler, but theoretically speaking, if I were to pick the lucky numbers once, twice, three times, um, twenty-seven times, uh, my question, I guess, would be: 
how many how many good guesses consecutive without any faults mm. does it take before we get suspicious? And I guess well, that's right. that yeah. to me is a litmus test for, for, for the future. And if we can find someone who can do that, I think we are in rarefied air. My mm. skeptics might say, well, it could be coincidence, but I, I put it back to you. You know, at what point would you get suspicious? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I, I guess the... The obvious question to go from there is, well, has there ever been anyone who's been able to pull this off successfully? I mean, in, in your article, Nathan, you talk about a psychic by the name of Sylvia Brown. She wrote a book in 2008, and she made a prediction in that book. She said that around 2020, a severe pneumonia-like illness will spread throughout the globe, attacking the lungs and the bronchial tubes and resisting all known treatments. Almost more baffling than the illness itself will be the fact that it will suddenly vanish as quickly as it arrived attack again 10 years later, and then disappear completely. I mean, a lot of people think, wow, how did how mm. did she predict a severe respiratory illness in 2020? I mean, is is that enough? Uh, I mean, that, that's a pretty... Is it a fluky prediction? Or how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think that's a... That's a great question, and I'd, I'd invite our listeners to have a think about that one. If mm. you were to take this prediction on board, what would you do with it? Would you take it as a as a one-off hole-in-one kind of a lucky shot sort of a thing or would you assume that this person had some sort of predictive power or connection with somebody that could i'd be curious <laughs> to yeah, me personally yeah. i'm a bit of a skeptic so mm. what i do and what i did with sylvia and i'm apologizing now it's been a, a few months since i wrote that part of the article yeah. but uh from memory i i seem to recall that i went through and had a look at some of her other work some mm. of her other predictions and some of her other guesses about the future and she she is pretty amazing and she's done, done a lot right but if i remember correctly and i apologize to the listeners ahead of time but i seem to recall that she got a few key things wrong as well mm. and so for that reason as impressive as as some of her predictions are given that they're not always a hundred percent accurate i'm i'm sort of in the skeptical camp you know if, mm. if there's 95 percent accuracy but five percent inaccuracy then I don't think she's really seeing the future in full. Maybe she's seeing the future in part, or maybe she's she's a brilliant weather forecaster. I'm open to suggestion on that, but yeah, to yeah. me, 100% is required if we're going to make the claim of that person can see the future. Okay, all right. And and I think you uh, you mentioned in your article too that Paul the Octopus had a uh, 85% <laughs> strike rate, which is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's what I remember. Mm. And And, of course... If you look at certain parts of his predictions, I mean, there, there were there were runs where he was 100% accurate for the last five picks or whatever it was. If you narrow his guesswork down to a certain box, you can say that 100% is there. Hmm. But when you look at the full range, you know, he did make some predictions that came out the other way. And I think yeah. if we're going to evaluate a claimant, we have to look at the whole picture. Otherwise, hmm. I mean... Maybe I could tell you I'm Superman, for example, and I could prove with a couple of tricks, but you want to get to the bottom of it before yeah, conceding yeah. that I'm really that good, if, if indeed I am. Yeah, I, I mean, Paul, Paul the Octopus, for example, I mean, if, if you're calling a, a series of football games, for example, I mean, it's basically similar to flipping a coin, isn't it? So you have five games in a row, you predict the outcome successfully five times in a row. I mean, that's pretty much equivalent to flipping a coin and getting five heads in a row, which which is something that's you know, entirely conceivable, really. Yeah, sure. It's, uh, it's, it's unlikely, but it is conceivably possible. I guess 
it'd be more amazing if we, you know, using the, the, the heads tails analogy, if I were to flip a uh, hundred coins and I were to tell you in advance of the flipping, I'm going to guess a hundred times correctly what's going to happen. Hmm. And it's, and it's going to be heads, by the way, a hundred times. Hmm. <laughs> You might be looking at that coin and thinking, hang on, does he weighted it somehow or is it magnetic? Or <laughs> mm. There's going to be some suspicion there because a normal person wouldn't be able to do that, I, yep. I would suspect. I think our listeners would probably suggest that at least. Okay, all right. So, look, let's let, let's get to the, the nub of the issue because you do in your article, Nathan, you suggest that there has been someone who made some incredible predictions and made a number of them and they were all 100% fulfilled. And that is the biblical prophet uh, Isaiah. Who, who wrote the, the book of Isaiah. So can you like, give us a, a bit of an introduction there and, and tell us like what were the predictions, how were they fulfilled, what, what gives you the confidence? Sure. Well, I guess back to the archer pulling back the bow and shooting the arrow, it's really important to make sure the target is drawn before the arrow is let loose because yep. if you have the arrow shot and then draw a target where it lands, of course you're going to say, you know, what a bunch of rubbish. So the the interesting thing is we have the Isaiah scroll. I'm specifically referring to the uh, 1Q Isaiah 1 scroll, the great Isaiah scroll, mm. which is in the shrine in Jerusalem. This particular scroll has been dated uncontroversially by people who don't share my worldview hmm. to between 300 approximately and about 100 approximately BC. Mm-hmm. And it's been dated multiple times, both paleographically, that means looking at the shape of the letters and how they're put together, the, the, the handwriting style, if you like, yep. and also radiocarbon dating. And both of those are seen to be fairly reliable. Both give us this range of dates. And so we know when the target was drawn, this may not be the earliest time the target was drawn, but we have this piece of papyrus in our hands today, which definitely predates the events we're going to talk about. Right, right. And okay, there's no okay. debate about that. But but there's there's evidence that it's that it is a copy, and the actual original was written what a few centuries even before that. Yeah, there's lots of debate there, and I don't want to. Um, gets caught up in the debate, but sure. what I can say is this piece of paper predates the events I'm talking about, and okay. if this paper predates it, then at least this paper knew before. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's an earlier paper, I mean, so much the better, but whatever the case, this 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 document works. Yeah, okay. And so you're, this scroll of Isaiah you're talking about, this is one of the Dead Sea scrolls, isn't it? This was dug up in, 19, right. in 1948 ar- around the Dead Sea. It was an in- incredible discovery. This is the, what, the oldest copies of the Old Testament that had ever been found, basically. I think so. I, hmm. There could be some debate there, but certainly the tradition was about 1000 AD before these scrolls were found, and these scrolls really give us, certainly in the case of the Isaiah scroll, hmm. the oldest Masoretic text version of the scroll, which is significant to scholars. Okay, all right. So what what did Isaiah predict in, in this scroll? Well, there's a whole bunch of specific predictions for various nations, and some of those have been argued by some to have been written after the fact. I'm not going to focus on those today. I'm, I'm happy to, to take that on board. Hmm. But what I can point to is I can point to some specific predictions that we do know predated events that we do have good reason to believe happened. Mm. And specifically, uh, and I borrowed this from a friend of mine, Matt, at agapebiblestudies.com, mm. he's come up with uh, 20 messianic predictions that talk about this Messiah that would come, that would make a huge impact on the world and would have certain properties or criteria, and specifically, just quickly, that this person 
would be born of the Davidic line, Mm -hmm. would have a Galilean ministry. His way would be prepared by somebody ahead of him that would meet certain properties, Mm -hmm. i.e. like a a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. This Messiah would be spat upon and struck. This person would be exalted, would be disfigured, would be widely rejected. So my, my, Mm. my disbelieving friends say, I don't believe this guy. That's predicted in that scroll as well. Mm. This person would allegedly bear our sins and our sorrows, and God's Spirit would rest upon him. And there's a whole big long list. And the interesting Mm. thing is, both in the Quran as well as in the early church fathers plus the Gospels, there is multiple attestations that they believed that these predictions were fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. And Mm. there was no Christianity in existence when the scroll was written. So... It's a very interesting challenge there for my sceptical friends to work on. Yeah. Now, look, earlier, Nathan, you set a pretty high bar. You said that if someone predicted with 95% accuracy but they were 5% wrong, you would still be sceptical and, and, and dubious. What about Isaiah? Does, does he make 95 Does he make 100%? Well, I'll indulge my um, sceptical friends a bit of patience here mm. because the accusation is going to be made, well, you can't prove that all those predictions came true. Mm. And I, I accept that pushback. But what I am suggesting is that there is not one case of any prediction which has been falsified or proven to be incorrect. Mm-hmm. That's the bar. It could be uh, with future evidence that more of these predictions will come to light as being either true or false, mm-hmm. and I'm very open to that. But in the meantime, as it currently stands, as we run through these predictions, there is not one flat contradiction that I'm aware of. If, mm. if I'm wrong, have the listeners let me know. But there's certainly some questions. Was that prophecy really fulfilled? Mm. And the, the, we don't have a video cameras from the Times. So we don't know <laughs> every detail. But we don't have anything that disconfirms. Mm. We have we have question marks or we have confirmation so far. Yeah, that's yeah. what we have. And, and I guess what what I would say to our listeners is, if you want to check out, you know, some of this for yourself. You know, jump online, you know, go to Bible Gateway or, you know, an, another online Bible there. And, uh, you know, in a modern translation that you can understand, look up Isaiah 53, the 53rd chapter of, of Isaiah. Read what it says there about this suffering servant. Then, mm. then read the later chapters of, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the, the four gospels in the New Testament written about the, the life and, and death and resurrection of Jesus and see how those accounts which are you know clearly based on history they mention real people real dates see how they match up with Isaiah 53 and I think you'll probably start to see why you know so many people have have drawn this line you know so clearly and and believe so strongly in this for for so many years is is that a, a fair call Nathan yeah I, I spot on I, I was wanting to substantiate some of the particular predictions like the, the 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 idea of being born of a virgin for example that's controversial for some people and I have some insights yeah. I that out of the Quran, but I think our time could be added out today. But uh, yes, mm. I encourage our listeners to check it out. Be skeptical, but be open-minded at the same time, because mm. as the scholars in the 1920s and 30s, Holscher and Hitzig and, and those gentlemen wrote, they, they assumed a priori at the beginning mm. that there was no possibility of supernatural intervention. And if we start with that assumption, 
no matter what data points we get, it's going to get confusing. But a good mm. scientist will look at all data points, even the inconvenient data points, yeah. and the hypothesis has to fit all the data. Otherwise, we're, we're cherry-picking, aren't we? Well, that's right. Yeah, I, I guess we need to adjust our worldview according to the data, not try to cram the data into our worldview. That's what it comes down to. Yes, well, well said. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much, Nathan. I, I really do appreciate you uh, joining us uh, this week on Science Radio. And, yeah, thank you also for, for writing the, the cover article for Signs of the Times this month. Who can predict the future? And I certainly encourage our audience to uh, check that out. Uh, check it out on our website, signsofthetimes.org.au. Subscribe to the magazine um, you'll be, and you'll be able to see the picture of Nathan's friend's plane parked perfectly and perpendicularly right on the line there. It's an in, yeah, incredible image. <laughs> Thanks so much, Nathan, awesome. for your time Thank this you, week. Thank you, Kent. Have a great one. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. 